what are your business leverage points that need to be optimized? It could be your offline sales, it could be your email sequences, it could be your marketing technology stack or your risk averse business culture or your business model screwed up. It's not just on page tweaking and testing. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Today we have Tim Ash, who is the CEO of Strategic Conversion Rate Optimization Agency, SiteTuners. I know that sounds like a mouthful. You know, I'm actually really happy to do this interview because Tim, who I just told, when I was first learning internet marketing or digital marketing or just marketing in general, I was following him in the very early days. And Tim is a guy that happens to know a lot beyond just marketing. I think we're going to talk a little bit about kind of, you know, how we see the world today as well. But Tim, I'm going to let you talk about it. I'm going to let you kind of describe your story. So first and foremost, welcome to the show. How's it going today? Uh, hey, Eric. Uh, great to be here. Uh, boy, with that kind of introduction, we, I was learning your stuff when I was uh, in diapers. It makes me feel really old. <laughs> I know. I, I realized that um, that that might make you feel old. But no, this was just a couple years ago. So it's it's not even like it was super long. So yeah, Tim, we're, we're on video right now. Tim looks very young, just so you all know. And I also met him in person too. So he's not an old man. <laughs> well, thanks for that. No, but I, I, if I were to kind of describe my entrepreneurial arc, it did start back in 95, uh, just shortly after Al Gore invented the interwebs, I guess. But uh, we started off with a web development business, making some of the first database-driven websites, which was you know, kind of you had to cobble that together back in the day. And then was were there for the early days of pay-per-click marketing with what was called GoTo, which later became Overture, which later became Yahoo Search. And ran a lot of pay-per-click campaigns and then kind of jumped at the, uh, into the affiliate space and doing pay-per-click arbitrage to drive traffic and make money that way. But one of the things that we realized very quickly is that most websites and pages we were driving to really sucked. And so we quickly moved into doing what's now called conversion rate optimization uh, around 2000 and became one of the premier agencies in the world for that. So co-founded SiteTuners, which is our agency, and we worked with uh, huge companies all over the world, as well as more nimble, smaller and mid-sized companies. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of reinventing yourself every day since 1995. That's awesome. So, I mean, can you give the, the audience kind of an idea of, because you guys, the way I see it, is you're one of the premier conversion rate optimization agencies out there. So what makes you different? What type of clientele have you worked with? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think the strategic focus, conversion rate optimization has largely been a cottage industry, and the focus has been on testing. I mean, there's a lot of good testing tools, especially these days out there, but I'm hearing the wrong stuff. It's like about testing velocity. You need to do more tests. You need to do quicker tests. You need to do more in fact, impactful tests. Here's 27 things to try on your landing page. It's all really, really tactical. 
And the way I would describe us is a little more like a, a digital specialized version of McKinsey or something. We're strategic. We'll come in and say, what are your business leverage points that need to be optimized? It could be your offline sales. It could be your email sequences. It could be your marketing technology stack or your risk averse business culture or your business model screwed up. It's not just on page tweaking and testing. Got it. Okay. That's awesome. And I, I know, you know, I'm sure everything's custom the way you price, but just so, you know, some people listening to this, they might decide, they, they might check out your stuff. They listen to this interview. It's like, man, I really need to work with Tim. So, you know, how, how does your business make money? How do you charge? And whatever you can reveal around that, it's totally up to you. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the only way we found that that works for everybody is to invest in each other and to collaborate on an ongoing basis. I don't know what I'll be doing for you six months from now. That'll probably change with your business priorities as well as we, we jointly identify as being highest impact. So we work on an ongoing retainer basis, uh, have a wide variety of packages for different size companies, but essentially we get to know your business and every month we agree on what we're going to be doing that month. And it's, uh, it's always going to be the, the highest impact stuff of, at the moment. Some of those projects may stretch over some number of months. We could be doing things in parallel as well in a number of areas that depends on basically the size of the uh, engagement. Got it. Okay. And so, you know, I'm going to jump back and forth here, but I think you kind of touched upon something, which is this whole, you know, high tempo testing growth at all costs, which a lot of this comes from, you know, the Valley comes from tech, right? It's like, let, let's move, let's move quickly, test a lot of different things and just move on. So, you know, what, what is your philosophy when it comes to, to testing and what is your response to kind of these people that want to, you know, test really quickly all the time and growth at all costs? Well, there's practical issues with that and philosophical ones. And I'll tackle the practical ones first. The, at a practical level, most companies don't have huge traffic sources. They don't have a large number of conversions. In a way, it doesn't even matter how many visitors you have. It's how many conversion actions, whether it's sales or form fills or phone calls you have. And usually you just have a few high volume pages or areas of your site that you can even test on. And what happens is as you test, you use up all of your good ideas in the testing. Presumably you have some better ones, right? And at the same time, your, your pages or your reg flow or your checkout process are getting better. And at some point, very quickly, those cross over. So the dirty little secret of testing is that you can only do two or three tests before you basically plateau out and you will not beat your current version of the page anymore. Uh, so then what? Well, that's the problem with testing. And so if, if you're just measuring testing velocity, the number of tests you do instead of bottom line impact, go do something else. Go go fix your abandonment recovery email sequences. Go train your call center people better. Go redesign your site from scratch. I know that's an ooh, it's something I'm not supposed to say around the testing folks, but it's it's freaking stupid to think you can design a a modern jet airplane from a biplane while flying it. You can't tinker your way to a really good new user experience. That has to be a fundamental reset. So if you're not taking time out to redesign your website, to incorporate various technologies like personalization and backend stuff, you're never going to be successful just testing alone. It's like fighting with one hand tied behind your back. Yeah, that's super helpful. I mean, you just you just brought up a good, really good point because I'm thinking like if you are, I'm thinking about other conversion rate optimization agencies out there. Maybe they're you know using a tool like Optimizee or Google Optimizer VWO to to help clients run tests, right? But after a certain point, 
it's going to be useless. They can't just keep running tests over and over. So how do you continue to add value? And what you're saying is you're, you're also looking at, you know, maybe additional value add like personalization and maybe, you know, other type of, um, other types of marketing activities they can do. That's kind of the, that's kind of what you do or, or am I hearing it wrong? Exactly. Or, or your business model. Maybe you should, uh, have a free trial offer. Maybe you should get rid of your free trial offer. Maybe you should bracket your plans differently and not have 17 of them, but just have three and the order you show them where the value proposition is, where you make the cutoffs between plans. Those are very fundamental questions. Pricing, all that is optimization. So to just think it's a, as one friend of mine once called it, you know, CRO or conversion rate optimization is a swim lane, just like pay-per-click or SEO. That's really wrongheaded thinking. Optimization is at the business level. If you're doing it right and you have the buy-in of the upper management. Right. It's holistic. Okay. I love that. Cool. So, for you, I mean, maybe, I mean, th- this audience, they love hearing about kind of specific results or any case studies. I mean, for you, you've done this, you've done this for like some of the biggest companies in, in the world. So are, are there any case studies where you can share what you did for a company and kind of the results that you saw? Yeah, well, well, the, most of our, the problem with our industry is that everybody wants to keep things under covers. We're working with the CMO of a major company right now. And I asked him if he'd be a public testimonial, and he actually said no. He said, I'll be glad to be a reference if you have prospects that want to work with you, but you're our secret weapon. Why would we tell people about you? So they don't even want, in most cases, to divulge that we're working with them. We have a lot of uh, NDAs signed and things like that. But uh, we do keep track of the value we've created. And as you mentioned, there's been the Googles and the Facebooks and the Nestles and the Shutterstocks over the years. And uh, we track the the annualized value that we've added. And we've created $1.2 billion in top-line revenue for our clients over the years. Awesome. That's great. I'm thinking about, too, because you're, you're, you are at the forefront of, of this industry, what are some of the new things that you, you just talk about personalization? Like what else are you seeing and maybe what, else, what tools could people be using just from a practical standpoint? Well, if you're talking about the marketing technology stack, I mean, folks like Scott Brinker, who runs the MarTech conference and is with HubSpot now, the masters of that. And there's lots of folks that can help you put together a marketing technology stack. But when we look at a company, we actually have what we call a, a conversion 360 assessment. So we're looking at their user experience, at their measurement and tracking, at their tools and technologies at their internal staff, organization, skill set, as well as their culture. And in each of those, we've kind of developed a report card of are you unoptimized, basic, intermediate, or advanced? And it's real easy to tell. My point is that throwing on a bunch of new marketing technology tools isn't necessarily the answer if you're really unoptimized in other areas and you don't know what to do with them. So tools aren't the solution. And even then, it's a kind of a crawl, walk, run situation. You layer them on, and somebody's got to be responsible for integrating all of them because the complexity of having multiple platforms that are all interacting with and talking to each other gets uh, really, really high in a hurry and it becomes brittle and easy to break those things. So it, so it has to be somebody, a CIO or a CMO, that's looking out for it which technologies do you onboard next? What does a pilot proof of concept look like? How do we know if it worked? And then how do we get full value out of it? 
Love it. So what, what I'm hearing, especially for you guys, if someone wants to come and work with site tuners, maybe you run them through like a growth score or some, some type of you're scoring them, you know, how, how much do they need help, maybe small, medium, large, or, you know, and then you're deciding kind of how you want to best help them, almost like how a doctor would diagnose someone. Yeah, exactly right. So we start with one of several, usually, uh, well, about half the time we jump right into a retainer engagement, but the beginning of that is always some kind of you know, level setting process. Either we're looking at their company, their user experience, their customer journeys, and with how their web experience is mapped to those, or three the kind of a touch point audit of everything online and offline that touches a prospect or client. So uh, it's it's some kind of evaluate what you have, okay, and then let's see how we can make it better. Got it. Okay. Cool. And then just on the final note of business, I kind of want to talk about kind of um, philosophy and how you think about things. So if someone from this listens right now, just so people don't waste their time, if they want to start working with site tuners, how much do they need to start investing Like at, at the bare minimum tier? What does it cost them to start working with you? Uh, it, it's such a wide range. We really do have programs for small companies um, and uh, ways to serve them effectively. And it could be just advisory on, on the low end or us doing more things hands-on with the company. The mix really, again, depends on the, the company and what they need and what they can handle internally. So it's it's reasonable. Um, I just suggest you talk to us, see if there's a fit. There's uh, We're always open to giving you a complimentary consultation with lots of value. Great. Cool. So, you know, we talked about this, we touched upon it already, already a little earlier around this whole growth at all costs. And then you see, you know, things happening rapidly, you know, Facebook is in trouble, you know, all these tech companies trying to grow at all costs. And it, it starts to feel a little overwhelming, right? So you, I, I think maybe starting with kind of your philosophy and, and maybe even, you know, why you do Tai Chi, I think that's a good starting point. And then we can talk about, uh, we can go deeper from there. Yeah, well, let me start by saying this. I've always had what I consider a kind of an optimistic biochemical constitution, right? Um, I don't look at the glass as half full, I mean half empty. I always look at it as half full. And one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, lately I've become a bit of a pessimist. There are just really strong forces at work in the world, in the political and the economic and social spheres that seem to be pulling together this kind of compact of advanced Western societies that held for the last century say and now i'm not sure that that center is going to hold we're kind of coming to this boiling point where we're probably going to eat the planet very quickly and there's some irreversible things happening with with climate change and so on and everybody's out to get theirs i want to pimp my ride and you know and have a walk-in closet full of nike shoes and all this this stupidity and that's what everybody's aspiring to and if we all get that we're all dead people you know, so I don't. I can't say I'm optimistic. I think the big challenge of our times is how to soft land capitalism into something sustainable. How to bring the population of the world into into balance. How to have people live with with less than than what we're being told to aspire to in this consumer culture. Uh, I think so. When you look at businesses in that sense, we have really high concentrations of wealth massive market dominance. So if you want to talk about capitalism, it assumes you have a lot of competition, which you don't in most sectors. Apple doesn't really have competition. Facebook, Google, we're, we're talking about concentrations of wealth, inequality, and power that are really counterproductive. They're going to be more oppressive than anything. I mean, look at all the people, you know, Uber's IPO is going to be tomorrow. All the Uber drivers are striking today because they are being forced to work for slave wages. There's nothing wonderful about having a side hustle. 
Mm. You know what's interesting? Um, I was reading. Uh, so th- there's a list of Twitter people I-, I follow, and one guy, his name is Andrew Chen. He's a, he's a partner at Andreessen Horowitz now, which is a, a venture firm. And I saw something where he tweeted. He's like, "What Uber's uncovering is the problem with our the, the world, the society in general. That these people need to actually go out there and get side gigs, right? It's not so much. He's saying it's not so much Uber's problem, but he's saying there it's a problem with um, maybe there's a problem with how things are structured right now in our society. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the dirty word in the U.S. at least or that some are on the right are throwing around is like socialism. But if you look at kind of you know moderate uh, welfare state like they have in, in Europe, I mean, there's common agreement that you need to, you know, you want to inform people, you have to educate them. You, you know, if you're not going to uh, if the world's going to be dislocated by technological shifts, you have to retrain them. You know, you have to make sure they have medical care and uh, aren't worried about the you know, go, going into bankruptcy just because they, they get diabetes or something. And all of these things have to be there to take this massive stress off of people. And guess what? There's the money to do it. I mean, so, you know, call me a socialist. I was born in the former Soviet Union. So call me a communist if you want. But I think that it's really out of whack. If you look at the concentration of wealth at the top, we're passing like the era of the roaring 20s in terms of income inequality now. So you're thinking maybe, uh, and just uh, maybe I'm kind of projecting what I'm thinking is maybe there needs to kind of be a baseline where people can start somewhere and then everyone be given at least an equal opportunity and then they can they they can figure out how to make the most of that opportunity. It sounds like right now people aren't getting that. That's right. I'd say healthcare, education, and uh, even there's there have been people both on the right and left for decades talking about a, a notion of universal income, right. uh, which is not welfare. It actually unleashes entrepreneurism and the ability to take risks because you don't have to worry of falling below a certain floor and being homeless. So I think there are lots of things that could be done. We know the right direction. But if anything, the controls are being taken off, making money, corrupting the political system to take the restraints off of corporations. So I, I think that's the, the direction is clear. It's whether there's the, the will to do it or, or there's revolutions like the yellow vests in France that will force people to change. Yeah, I mean, we're at the forefront of this stuff kind of because, you know, we're helping people that want to make more money. So we're seeing a lot of the stuff and we're seeing a lot of the, the, the tools that, that are basically, well, causing these things, right? We talk about Instagram, things like that. But anyway, I don't want to go too deep into that. I, I'm more curious about what you're doing to kind of center yourself around all this chaos that's kind of happening right now. Yeah, I think that all of us need to start paying attention more to community in every in every form, whether it's a, you know, I have some new neighbors that moved down from the Bay Area here in San Diego and they're having a poker night and a game night and they're actively trying to foster a local community, even something as basic as that. Uh, the point is to build the center. This, right now, the centripetal forces are really strong. And so anything you can do on a personal level or a local level to build that sense of community and, and stillness in your world is key. As you mentioned, I practice Tai Chi. I studied here in San Diego for several years with a master from Hong Kong, and I'm one of a couple of people that he's authorized to teach. They don't have time to do that at the moment, unfortunately. But having whether it's yoga or Tai Chi or just sitting mindfully for five minutes, what are you incorporating into your daily habits that gives you stillness, that fights the stress and the incredibly high levels of cortisol that many of us experience on an ongoing basis. That's the death, you know, that's the quiet death that nobody talks about. 
Great. What else do you do aside from that? Because because what I'm really looking at from this conversation and even looking at be, be behind you know all the, all these keynotes that you've done is that my perception of you is that Tim is a deep thinker, and I'm always curious how people get better at thinking about things, right? So I guess it's a two separate question. So A, what else do you do to stay centered? And then B, how do you become, how do people improve at thinking about things? I think that um, one of the keys for me is to start your day off right. And that literally means making the bed, you know, just doing a tiny little action. Make your bed. Don't just jump out and run away. I go for my walk down to the ocean. I do my Tai Chi by the cliffs. I come back. That's after I've taken my kids to school or made them breakfast and they head off to school. So I get a little time with them. So I bank all the good stuff at the beginning of the day. So if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not getting exercise, if you don't have alone time every day, you can't function. You can't recharge your batteries. You can't serve others. Uh, so I think that building in daily habits is the, is the only thing that works. It's not really about thinking about it. You actually have to do things embody it literally got it okay cool and actually i mean this actually ties in with um the book recommendation that you put in typically um, i don't see what people fill in ahead of time but that actually shows that the people that read these types of books are i think are are deep thinkers so i'm not going to just ask for one book recommendation i'm going to ask for a couple so a what is one must read book you'd recommend to the audience let's go with that one first well, I actually have three. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. But the, the, probably the most impactful book I've read in the last five years was uh, called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Hariri. I mean, when, when you just you, you read this book and you read between the lines and how this guy's mind works, how much he's understood, integrated and synthesized for the rest of us simpletons. I mean, it's just a tour de force, really. It's packed with so many insights. I, I can't even believe it. So highly recommend Sapiens. On a more personal level, I just recently picked up and went through The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson. Yep. Um, I know a lot of folks have read that. If you haven't, I mean, it's, again, very accessible, very readable. Um, it's got some good philosophical stuff in it, and it's also based uh, you know, from what you know, my own knowledge on some good kind of neuromarketing principles or neuro principles and assumptions. Uh, when some of the things he talks about are, for example, you're going to suffer. Buddha said that too. There's no avoiding it. So the question is, what's worth suffering for? And values can help you clarify that. Okay. I'm, I would suffer for a more honest communication. I would suffer for the service and protection of people close to me. I would suffer for discipline and hard work. For example, those are some of my values, okay, but that gives the suffering meaning and a framework. But one of the other things that comes out of it is saying no to a lot of things. If they're not aligned with your values, you just say no to experiences, people, situations. I think that's a key. We all try to do more. We all try to have the four hour work week and cram more stuff into our lives. I think the right answer is just like, being absolutely ruthless, either it aligns with our values or, or, or I say no. Love it. Cool. So we got sapiens in there. We got uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And then what was the third one? Well, the third one is, is going to be a little bit shameless uh, self-promotion, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, as, as you may know, I've written a couple of best-selling books on landing page optimization, and that's great for a very specific for online marketers. But I'm right now, you know, one of the things I've been always passionate about, going back to one of my majors in, at the University of California, San Diego, was cognitive science, is how the brain works. 
And I think there's a vast ignorance among marketers about how the brain works. We're all focused on the technology and the real cool stuff is having and happening at the biology, psychology, and behavioral economics level. So I've taken about 30 books and digested them, and I've written what I feel is like kind of the distillation of all the important stuff that you need to understand about influencing the unconscious mind. So the book is called Unleashing the Primal Brain, The Essential Field Guide for Modern Marketers, and it's coming out uh, this summer. Love it. Make sure you guys go pick that up. We'll drop it in the show notes as well so you can pre-order it. I actually, I forgot that you went to UCSD. I actually went to UCSD as well. Um, so small world. Right on. Uh, fellow Triton. Oh, wait, we can't have school spirit because UCSD people don't have any school spirit. Yeah. Do you guys still do an event right now? Uh, absolutely. I've been, uh, I, I shared and co-founded the, it was originally called Conversion Conference, the first industry conference about conversion rate optimization. It's now been broadened out a bit and it's called Digital Growth Unleashed. And every year we have shows in the U.S. as well as Germany and the U.K. So the next show is coming up June 18th and 19th at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas for the U.S. And in the fall, we have the London and Berlin shows. So, yeah, check it out. I'm very proud every year of, of the program and the speakers that we get. That's awesome. I, I guess my, my question for you, too, is um, we're, we're doing a live event. We're probably going to do way more. So why do you decide to continue to do um, live events after all these years? Oh, I, you, I, it's it's interesting that you ask that because I've done also lots of webinars and like written books, as you know. But there's nothing like face to face contact. So I love doing keynotes. I I love running my own conference, and I love doing on site corporate trainings. In fact, that's my focus these days is training people face to face. So you, there's no shortcut to that. Listening to a webinar while you're checking your email at your desk is not the same as a sense of community that you're going to get at a live event or live training. Right. Love it. Completely agree. All right. So I know you don't like this question that much, but what is what is one tool that you've added in the last year that's added a lot of value to your life? So it could be like an app or it's a, it could be like a physical thing like a Peloton bike. I'd actually, I'm going to twist that question since you're right, I don't like it, into saying there's one thing that's that I've eliminated, and that is all social media apps on my phone. Love it. Other, other than my email, I, I got rid of Facebook Messenger or Facebook itself, LinkedIn. You know, there's nothing on there that I need that much frequency with. I still have text messaging with my, you know, my family and close friends to get a hold of me, but uh, essentially... You know, the distractibility, the tool that I've uh, optimized is by taking away from my phone. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I look at my um, my screen time. I probably lose uh, probably eight to twelve hours a month on Instagram. So I'm sure you've saved countless days, weeks of of time. Yeah, and they've actually shown that even having the phone, never mind uh, in front of you, never mind you know, on your desk. I mean, even having it in the same room has that distracting capability. So often, I literally put it in the hall in my office. It's not in my office. That's smart. Awesome. Well, Tim, this has been incredible. What's the best way for people to find you online? You can always find me on, at timash.com. That's that's the central place. So if you're looking for a keynote or online marketing training for your inside of your company and that that face-to-face value, uh, I'm there. Awesome. Tim, thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure, Eric. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week, and remember to take action and continue growing.